We're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. And Acts is a book filled with conversion stories, records and reports of people coming to faith. And today we're looking at three stories, three radically different stories of three radically different people and how they came to faith. And what we're going to see is who Christianity is for. We're going to see who the church is for, and we're going to see who the church is built by. And because we're reading three stories, we've got quite a bit of verses to read. I believe in you guys. I think that you can do it. We've got 27 verses. We're going to be in Acts 16 today, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 40. And again, like we've been doing, there'll be questions at the end if you have them. My number will be on the screen, and you could text those questions into me, and we'll have five to seven minutes of Q&A or so. And please just ask whatever you want to ask, you can ask. I don't know if I'll answer it well, and I don't know if I'll answer it, but you can ask. All right, here we go. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, a few days perhaps have passed, and then it says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept going for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened. And Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before, before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up 
into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All right, you did it. First point, the gospel for everyone. Christianity is for all types of people. In fact, it is for all cultures, all people groups, and there is not a person or a culture it can't transform. Other religions, if you look at them, they are confined to personality types, social status, ethnicities, you need to be born in a certain place perhaps, but Christianity is wildly inclusive. Now some people will say, Christianity isn't for me. I'm too scientific. I'm too logical. I'm too sinful. I'm too practical. I'm not good enough. I'm too good. I don't need it. And all of those statements could be said by the people today that we look at in our story. And so I just want to look at them, and I want to show you how radically different these three people are. So first, economically, Lydia was an upper-class shop owner who dealt purple goods, which means it's used with purple dye, which is very expensive. So she's very upper class, and she's dealing with people who are very upper class, and her life is very much put together. In fact, the way that Luke, the writer of Acts, is describing her, it seems to me like he's referencing what has been called the ideal woman from Proverbs 31. If you want to look at it, you can go read it. Um, don't feel the weight. Well, we can talk about that later. Anyways, so then you have, so you have Lydia, this woman who has it all together and is upper class. And then you have a demon-possessed slave girl who has been sold probably at a, when she was very young to slave owners or to the people who own her, to these masters. And she's probably about 10 to 14 years old in our story here. She's very, very lower class. And then you have the jailer who's just, he's middle class. He's right there in the middle. He's probably a hardworking ex-soldier who has this job now as a jailer when he retired from being a soldier. Racially, Lydia is Asian. The slave girl is Greek and the jailer is Roman. Socially, Lydia is an insider. The slave girl is an outcast. And the jailer is right there again in the middle. Now, personality-wise, Lydia is a thinker. It says she considered, she was considering what was, what was being said. A lot of thought is being brought, about, when we think about Lydia, we're thinking about thinking. She's a thinker. And then the slave girl is very much experience driven. She needs to be moved by a display of power. And then the jailer, he's just practical. 
He's looking for something that's useful. And then spiritually speaking, Lydia is open, searching, but empty. The slave girl is hostile to Christianity. And the jailer is indifferent. Now, okay, those are very widely different types of people. And their stories are very different too. So let's just walk right through their stories. We're going to look at Lydia first. Again, she deals with purple dye. She probably could... If, if you want to think of what would you compare Lydia to, she could be someone who owns a boutique, a very fancy boutique in Miami, also in New York and also in L.A. And she probably has houses in all of those cities. And then it says that she's a God-fearer. Now, okay, what does that mean? Well, because she's not Jewish, what it means is she's adopted to the degree that she can the Jewish faith, which means she's reading the Old Testament. But her background would have been something like an Epicurean, which means like there's nothing after this, so let's just live the life that we have to the fullest. Or she's a Stoic, which means that she's suppressing all of her desires, and she's saying whatever life is throwing at me, I'm just going to be content with it no matter what. And the belief there is that there isn't really an afterlife. It's just we get swallowed up into the soul of the earth, and, and this circle of life happens where we become like fertilizer. Or she believes in some type of Greek mythologies or a combination of all three of those things. But the bottom line is she's walked away from all of that. And she started reading the Old Testament. And she's gathering with this group of women to pray. And Paul and his companions go to pray as well. And they meet. And they have a little Bible study of sorts. And in this Bible study, because they know the Bible well, and Lydia is a thinker, Paul probably recognized that and says something like, you know the story of Abraham, how God called him to leave his home country to a place he doesn't know, but God will establish his kingdom there. Well, the same way God has called Jesus to be the greater Abraham who leaves his home in heaven and comes to establish a kingdom here on the earth for us. In the same way Moses was the mediator between God and man, Bridging the gap. Jesus is the greater Moses who deals with our sin, bridges the gap between us and God so we can be in relationship with God again. Changes our heart to want God, and then also he deals with our sin so we can just run into the presence of God. That's Jesus. Or maybe Paul said something like this to them. You know the story of David, where he battled against Goliath. Well, Jesus is the greater David, who battled against the Goliath of sin and death as we watched on the sidelines, and he won for our sake. And he would have said all of these things, and then notice the word. It said paid attention. And in Greek, the word is prosecco, which means something like to bend the mind to consider something you have not yet considered. See, he's, Paul's going for her thinking, and she believes. He meets her where she is, and she believes. So that's Lydia's story. Now the slave girl's story, she does not have time for deep thinking. She's on the streets. She's trying to survive the best that she can. And it says that she has a spirit of divination or a spirit that predicted the future. And you're like, well, how are you going to deal with this, David? Well, so John Stott in his commentary on Acts he says, actually, the Greek word is not spirit of divination, but spirit of the python. And we don't know what that means, so the translators translate it as divination. But here's what's going on. 
This is, a, this is pointing our attention back to this classical, classical mythological idea that at Apollo's temple, there was a snake that guarded the temple. And this, something about Apollo would, would like latch on to the women who were devoted to Apollo. Right, it's weird, right? And then they would become something like a ventriloquist, meaning Apollo would be speaking through them. And so you're thinking to yourself, um, David, I don't know what this means, and I would like to hear how you're going to explain that to me. And so let me give it a shot. Go back to the Old Testament. And when... Well, let me say it this way. She's an extreme version of what happens when evil takes hold of you. And you're thinking, well, that's not going to happen to me, right? Well, don't be so naive. Now, okay, before I freak you out, let me explain some things. In, in the Old Testament, whenever they talked about false gods, sometimes those false gods were called demons, and what, what would happen is an entire land would like fall under the spell, you could say, of some spiritual giant. Uh, also, the Bible calls these things idols. And what happens with idols is we fall under their control. We become possessed by them in a way. And so you're thinking this isn't happening to you, but let me show you how the same thing is happening all the time all around us. So let's take money, for example. John D. Rockefeller, who has been called the richest man in modern history, considering the amount of money he had at the time, he w someone asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. He's not only obsessed with money, he is possessed by it. You could make the argument that our culture today is obsessed or possessed by sex, beauty, uh, we see what pornography is doing to, to men and the expectation then that is placed upon women because of it. And you could easily argue that our culture is being ruled today or obsessed or possessed by the spirit of beauty or sex. Then you can take power. So with power, you imagine someone who gets into politics and as they get into politics, they're thinking, I just want to make the world a better place. I want to make a difference. And then they enter into politics and they start realizing, I need a bit of power and influence in order to make a difference. So they're chasing some power and influence. And then over time, what ends up happening is instead of making a difference being the end and power is the means, it's flipped. And now power becomes the end. They're possessed by the chase of power. Now... In our area, where we live, there is a vile evil that lurks through the side streets of your heart. And it's comfort. The chase for comfort. We're obsessed with it or possessed by it. And we say things like this. We might not say them out loud, but of course it's in our hearts. We just want to be okay. Like we want everything to be okay. And so here's our strategy for it. If I could just get enough material stuff, well, how much material stuff do you need? Well, you look around at everybody else, and you need just a little bit more than they have. 
And as you chase that, one, it never comes because as soon as you get a little bit more, then you start hanging out with people who have more. And then when you hang out with people who have more, there's someone who has more in that people group. So now you've got to get even more. And it just always keeps repeating. So you never end up achieving comfort and you never think you have enough to get comfort. And now you have become a slave to chasing comfort and you're very uncomfortable about it. We're possessed by it. And then, so, so then look at what happens to this slave girl. She's following Paul around, and Paul gets annoyed, and he says to the spirit to get out of her. And, and it works. She's free. I wonder what Paul would say to us about our comfort, desire for it. I wonder if he would get annoyed by our chasing of comfort, or whatever it is we're chasing, and if he would just say to that spirit of comfort, leave. And then I wonder what would happen in our lives if we lived without that idol. And now I want you to notice too, these idols are not bad things. They're good things that get twisted into bad things because we, we become obsessive or controlled by them. And then you look at, here's another interesting thing about this girl. She is very hostile to Paul and his companions. She hates them but she's drawn to them and she can't stop following them around because she's obsessed with their power. Now you think about evil, you think about Satan. The whole idea of Satan is that he is drawn to the throne of God and drawn to God by his power, but hates him at the same time. And this girl is being absolutely controlled by whatever it is that's in her. And Paul just simply commands it to leave and it leaves her and then she becomes a Christian. So that's her very intense story. And then you have the jailer. After Paul sets this girl free, she loses her ability to predict the future. Now, the masters of this little young slave girl are very angry. So they devise a way to get Paul beaten severely and his companions and then thrown into jail. And that's where they meet the jailer. And the jailer takes them and puts them in the inner part of the prison, which is the place of torture, and puts them in stocks, which is basically they're being stretched out. It's a very painful, torturous act. And while all that's happening at midnight, they're in all of this. I mean, they've been severely beaten. They've been tortured. Maybe they're still being tortured. And yet they begin to praise God with joy. You know, the jailer is probably seeing this and wondering what in the world is going on. And you think about them praising God, and you put yourself in their position. Here's what we'd be thinking. God, I have done everything you asked me to do. I've been obedient to you. I don't even like that word, God, but I've been obedient to you. Okay? And in doing that, you have had me severely beaten, tortured, and imprisoned. I mean, we'd be shaking our fist at God. And yet, they know something about God that causes them to have great joy and praise in their heart. And when they do this and they praise God, the earth quakes, the prison doors open up, and the jailer's about to kill himself. Why is he going to do that? Well, when you're an ex-soldier turned jailer, this is a decent job. It's a good job. You want this job. It's got lots of perks. But the problem is, is if you lose your prisoners, there's going to be a public execution 
You're going to be killed for losing the prisoners. So to avoid the shame of this public execution, he's about to take his own life. And just before he does, Paul says, stop, we're still here. He can't believe it. He rushes in, calls for the lights, sees them there. And then he says immediately, what must I do to be saved? Why did this lead him to be ready to give everything to Christ? Well, you think about him and what he's just seen. First, he's a warrior. He's an ex-soldier. And he sees a bravery in them that he's maybe never seen before. But not just a bravery, not just are they singing after they've been beaten and bruised, like they look almost like crazy people to him, but wow, these would be great warriors, he's thinking. But also, he maybe has never seen anybody so loving and gracious. Because all they had to do was run and leave and they could get back at their torturer. This is a time for vengeance, a time for justice. But instead, they stay risking their lives, risking their future for the sake of their torturer. There's a love and a grace here that's probably very foreign to this warrior. And he experiences somehow these people who look like they have all the makings of being the bravest warriors, yet they're the most loving people he's ever seen, and he doesn't understand it. And because he's practical, he wants it. So he says, what must I do to have what you have? And some of you aren't theologians. Some of you aren't possessed by evil. But you are indifferent to God. But there's something lacking in your life if you're indifferent, you probably don't have the joy, peace, and strength that you want. So if you are indifferent, you look at Paul and his companions and you see the joy, peace, and strength that they have. And you gotta come to this realization, Christianity isn't just true, it's useful. So go to him and you get all of this thrown in. All right, then what happens next? Well, what happens is the church is birthed in Philippi. It's born. This is our next point, the church for everyone. Now, let's go back to Lydia. When Lydia comes to faith, she immediately says to Paul and his companions, why don't you guys come and stay at my house? Come meet my family and stay with us. And they don't seem to want to stay. But she convinces them. Says she, she what did she do? She prevailed, which means like, we know she's a thinker, so probably her wit and her intellect convinced them that it would be a good thing for them to stay at her house. So they all go to her house, and you know this is what happens. Your heart gets opened up, so your home gets opened up. And I want you to realize what she's just done. She has created the hub for Christianity right there in her home in Philippi. The church has been birthed in her home. And then we go to the last verse that we read in our verses, and it says, Paul and his companions left the jail after this was all over, and they went to Lydia's house to strengthen and encourage. Now, it translates as brothers, but we're supposed to read this as the whole church. So who would have been there then? Well, Lydia and her family would have been there. The young slave girl would have been there. And the jailer and his family all would have been there at this church. Now, if you're walking by this and you so happen to move the curtain over and peer into this group of people, you would be. This is an unlikely group of friends. 
Who is this strange conglomeration of people? Well, this is what the church looks like. And then you got to, you got to, I'm going to, I'm going to form an educated guess here. The Bible puts a big emphasis on caring for orphans. You've got this girl who's probably 10 to 14 years old. She at best had a place to stay with her evil masters, but now she's not associated with them anymore. They're angry. She's out on the streets. So my guess is that somebody here is adopting this little girl. And my guess is that it's Lydia. And if it is Lydia, what we have before us is a rags to riches story where she's been out living on the streets. One, she's been, she has been sold into slavery by her parents. She's had evil slave masters her whole life who were using her for her talents. Now she's homeless, surviving, and then is adopted by Lydia and has a mother who loves her like Christ loves her. This is like an orphan, homeless girl who now has just moved into likely the biggest house in the city. The slave has become the princess. And let's say those evil slave masters want to get back at her, or they want to take her again to see if they can get the power back from her, or see if she can get this power again. Well, who's going to stop her? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The jailer, the ex-soldier, and all of his buddies, because that jailer is going to say, if he sees those slave masters coming around, he's going to go get his soldier buddies. He's going to say, look, we're going to protect this girl. And there would be a force up against those evil masters that would drive them away. The church is for everyone. But the church is also for everyone. Meaning the church fights for her people. This is what makes up the kingdom of God. You fighting for the person sitting beside you. You fighting for your friends. You fighting for those in your discipleship group. That is what the church is. It's a group of people who are fighting for each other. And it's an unlikely group of friends. And if if you're thinking, man, do I have that? Let it start with you if you don't. And the church isn't just for everyone. And the church isn't just for everyone. But the church is built by everyone. This is our next point. There's, a, there's an old Jewish prayer. This is a real prayer that Jewish men prayed. And it went like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's a real prayer that Jewish men prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, look at the irony. Look at the humor of God. One of the most One of the healthiest churches in the New Testament is built, started by a young slave girl, a woman, and a Gentile. It's like God has just flipped it and said, I will show you my power. Now, I will show you what I can do. Now, here's what that means for us. We have this dream that this statistic in the Treasure Coast, this area between Fort Pierce and West Palm, which is the number one area in all of the nation of people who've never once stepped foot into a church, our dream is to, is to take the Treasure Coast. And you think, okay, 
Well, God loves an underdog story. My guess is that God will use the most unlikely churches and the most unlikely people to make this happen if it's going to happen here. I mean, God loves really good underdog stories. The, you think about Jacob. Jacob is a mama's boy in the Old Testament. And he turns into a man who wrestles with God. And then God renames him Israel, which is the name that all of God's people adopt as their name. You take Moses, who was a stutterer, who then becomes the, the greatest, one of the greatest leaders in the world ever. You take David, who's a pretty boy, and he fights against Goliath and drives him back and then drives a whole army back and becomes one of the greatest warriors in Israel's history. And then you think of Paul in our story. You know Paul was the villain of Christianity. And then he comes to faith and he, he becomes probably the greatest leader in Christian history. And, he, and, and here's, what else, here's what else the church is built on. Courage and wisdom. Look at what he does. Look at Paul. Paul's a Roman citizen. Which means everything that happened to him, how he was tortured and thrown in jail and beaten, it should not have happened. And all he had to do before it happened was say, I'm a Roman citizen. Stop what you're doing. Like that. See, this is unlawful what's happening here. And, and they would have stopped. But he doesn't. He lets it happen. What is he doing? Well, we know Silas is in prison with him, but, but maybe some of his other companions were in there with him that weren't Roman. So Paul would have been saved from this, and they would have been thrown in prison, and Paul doesn't want that. So maybe Paul doesn't say it because he wants to be with his friends so he can fight for them in that prison. Also, second reason is probably he's showing some solidarity for the Christians that are to come in Philippi. Because at some point... We know that Christianity is, becomes very persecuted, and, and Paul has seen it. Paul was part of persecuting the church. He knows it's coming to this church in Philippi, so he leads the way and says, all right, I'm going to go to jail so that when others go to jail after me, they will be like, we're, we're following after Paul, who's led the way. And here's, I think, one, the most important thing that he does here. Because he keeps his mouth closed and does not say he's a Roman citizen, he is beaten, he is tortured, and he is jailed. And when the Roman leaders find out that they did this to a Roman, if you, were, if you remember reading it, they're terrified. Because they can get in big trouble for what they just did. What he's just done, they're not going to want to make the same mistake again. So what he's just done is he's given space to the church in Philippi to flourish. They're not going to be persecuted the same way because they made a big mistake with Paul and they don't want to make it again. It's a man with courage and wisdom. And the Bible is filled with stories like this. And it means for you, doesn't matter your background, your social status, uh, your beauty, how you determine what your worth is, your success in life, doesn't matter what it is. God uses all people to bring the kingdom of God. And often he will use unlikely people to bring the kingdom of God.
The name, the grove, comes from Isaiah 61.4, which says, They will be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and they will rebuild the ruined cities. The Bible's working on this understanding that our world is in ruins. And he's and it's Christians who are called to rebuild. There's a lot of work for us to do. There's a lot of opportunities of good work to do. And that is the pattern of the kingdom of God, for God to use unlikely people, for God to use underdogs, and to do it with a group of unlikely friends. In fact, we look at Christ. He was and is God, and he becomes an underdog in in almost every way. He strips himself of all of his glory, and he's clothed like us. So we can look at God. I mean, this should blow your mind. We can look at God and know he has experienced what we've experienced. When he's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, the idea is he is tempted in absolutely every single way that you have been tempted. He knows what you're going through, and he feels the weight of it all. And then look look at how he meets the three people in our story, right in their world. So for Lydia, he shows her real beauty by taking all the beauty that he had in heaven and he stripped himself of it and he stripped himself of his purple royal clothing. Purple's the color of royalty and he throws it down to the dust and he puts on garments of crimson red. He wears our sin upon the cross and then he wears a crown on his head of thorns that dig into his scalp and cause blood to run down his face. And then he is whipped with a cat of nine tails, which is a whip that has like claws at the end of it and would grip and rip the flesh off of his body. So blood is pouring out of his back, red. And then nails go into his hands and his, side, and his feet and then a, a spear in his side. I mean, he looks beastly. And then he goes down into death and decay. Like he's deteriorating into death. But then he rises. And when he rises, he comes holding the purple cloak of his righteousness, of his beauty and of his worth. And he gives it to all of us. So that now we are clothed with the beauty of heaven. We're clothed with the righteousness and the goodness of heaven. It's like showering over us. That's how he meets Lydia. That's how he meets us. And then to the slave girl. She has power, but she can't really use it. Like she, she has no control of what's happening to her. So Jesus has all of this power, but he lays it aside. He can't use it. In fact, on the cross, he comes to give power away. He loses power on purpose. And when he does, he descends into the darkness fights against all evil, freeing, freeing himself, and then freeing Lydia, or not Lydia, the slave girl from it as well. And not only that, he gives the slave girl a, a new home and a new family. And the same thing he does for us, where he gives us, he frees us and he gives us a new home and a new family, an eternal home and an eternal family. And then to the jailer, he shows himself a warrior where he goes and fights not things that are of flesh and blood, but he goes down into the deepest dungeon and the darkest places and the lowest pit. And there he faces our greatest fear, death 
and the evil corruption that of darkness that I don't even have the words to tell you how terrifying it is. And there he goes there alone and he faces that evil and he wins. And it means now you don't have to face evil alone. He's with you. And you have your group of unlikely friends to face evil with you as well. He rewrites all of their stories and he rewrites your story. That's what he does. He brings beauty out of ashes, power in powerless places. He gives power to these misfits and underdogs. And he brings joy and praise in prisons of sorrow and despair. The gospel's for everyone. For misfits and people who have their life together. Both need Christ. For the rejects and those who are admired. Everybody needs Christ. To the insider and to the outsider, all need Christ. And that's the message of Christianity. Who is the gospel for? Everyone. Who gets it? Everyone who knows that they need it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we praise you that you are rewriting a new story for us. And that your pen writes in gold. And you've written for us an amazing ending. And I pray that you would give us the strength of Paul in that prison with his friends who know that they have joy available in you no matter what's before us. God, I pray that we would be released from the things that we are obsessed or even possessed over and from. And I pray, God, that if we're indifferent to you, you would open our eyes to see your glory, beauty, and worth. We love you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.